Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and we're going to start with what else? Tuesday night's brawl between Kansas and Kansas State. Ugly scene, dangerous situation. The recap, I think, goes something like this. So Kansas is up 80-59, final seconds, dribbling out the clock. Uh, Deshaun Gordon decides he wants to get this deficit inside 20 for whatever reason. So he steals the ball from Silvio DeSosa, takes off in transition, decides he's going to be the next George Pappas, right? Shouts to George Pappas, shouts to Mammoth. And so DeSosa's like, these fools ain't dunking on us in the final seconds again. So he chases Gordon, aggressive block. Gordon's on the ground. DeSosa walks over him, stands over him. Looks like he's planning to just stand over this poor soul forever. So Kansas State takes offense. There's some jawing. There's some pushing. And then Kansas State's Antonio Gordon runs in there pretty good, makes contact with DeSosa, who falls down. Big crowd gathering. So DeSosa comes up swinging, and now we've got a brawl. DeSosa was throwing punches. He picked up a stool, didn't swing it, but he held it up and looked like he might swing it like a wrestler. It's wild stuff. As far as I know, Nobody was seriously hurt, but the whole thing was undeniably potentially dangerous. You had players fighting in the same vicinity as fans, cheerleaders, disabled people who were sitting on the baseline. Crazy stuff. Norlander, um, what did you make of it, what we saw last night inside Allen Fieldhouse? All right. Well, um, you know, I did the emergency podcast kind of GP. That was a stream of consciousness, 20 minutes or so. Um, So I hit on a lot of my thoughts in real time on that podcast. So I'll be uh, obviously uh, abridged here, but uh, I thought this was wild. Shouts to you for bringing up Pappas. I actually mentioned that on the emergency pod because I didn't see anyone bring up the fact that this had happened to Kansas earlier in the season with Mamas and George Pappas, and that became a thing. And you almost wonder if just, you know, in the back of uh, Gordon's mind, if he's like, I'm going to be the next George Pappas. I'm going to go and do this right now. And really, like, if you're DeSouza, you know, in the moment, you're like, no, we aren't having this done to us again. Like this is there. We are not having to do dunk on us in garbage time. Like already happened. So I wonder if like you know on some incremental you know molecular level that actually you know played into the subconsciousness of either uh, of either player there. But um, DeSouza standing over him. This is why this happens. Uh, obviously uh, a terrible look. But I I gave most of my thoughts here. I can give you more if you need them. But uh, people have not heard from you. So you know when this is playing out. Um, were you as taken aback as I was that it wasn't? Because normally, GP, when this happens, you get like, uh, oh, oh, okay, okay, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then usually it's a separation. This was, this was like one level, then level two, then level three, then level four, then level five. They're actually in the bleachers there. What was your reaction immediately when it happened? And then now you've had time to process this. You obviously talked about it on CBS Sports Network. What are you know two or three of your biggest takeaways from uh, from what we saw on Tuesday night? So I was inside uh, the CBS Broadcast Center. We had a triple header last night, and we have to when we're sitting where we sit in between half times or you know post game shows or whatever. Um, there's 12 TVs in front of us, and we have volume on one of them. And in this case, I believe it was on our game, Butler Villanova, and but then we have everything else on. And I happen to be sitting right in front of the TV where we had Kansas Kansas State on now. Uh, obviously it's a, it's a blowout. It had been a blowout since very early in the game. So you're not paying close attention to it. Uh, particularly when, you know, Kansas is just dribbling out the clock. So my eyes drifted at some point, but I go back up to the screen for whatever reason. 
and I see it just starting. And then you have that moment like, is this really happening? Because, again, we don't have the volume on that game. So it's like it's we don't have the uh, the addition of of the announcers saying, oh, my God, what is happening? This is getting bad. You can't hear anything um, because that TV's muted. So it's like it takes you like maybe three seconds to realize, oh, wow, this is live. And Kansas and Kansas State are actually fighting. And then, of course, we switch over the volume and and everybody gets caught up. I, I will say. The Pappas thing, I think, is important um, to provide context to this for the exact reason that you said. When we were in studio last night, it was me, Brent Stover, Jameer Nelson, and Wally Zerbiak. And on air during one of the halftimes, I brought up the Monmouth situation as a, a possible, I don't know, contributor to what we just watched. And when we went to commercial, Wally was like, who cares about the Monmouth situation? He didn't know what I was talking about. And so I pulled it up. And I, I explained, I was like, listen, like this happened to them earlier in the season. And I, I just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if in that moment, DeSosa's like, no, 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 you, you, you got, this is not going, we're not allowing this to happen in, in our building again. And while he was like, really? And I showed it to him and he goes, no, you're exactly right. Like that, that is what happened because of what happened in the Mammoth game. Uh, DeSosa, that's why he ran as hard as he and blocked it as right. aggressively as he did. Like, you're not doing this to us again. We already had this happen once. This is not going to become a thing. So it is interesting that you go back to that Mammoth game, and I do think you find the root of what happened here. I don't know that um, Gordon was motivated by it, but I do know that I do believe that once Gordon did what he did, DeSosa was motivated by what happened previously, and that's why he ran as hard as he's ever run and blocked as, uh, blocked the shot as aggressive, aggressively as he's ever blocked anything. And then he stands over him. And this is where I started to rely on Wally and Jameer a little bit because they've been in these types of situations in basketball games. They both said if this happens with four minutes left, 17 minutes left, at any other point in the game, it, it, it does not escalate the way it escalated that it happened at the end of the game and close to the Kansas State bench is what caused it. Because if it happens in the game, the assistant coaches and everybody else are quickly saying, you know, they're, they're keeping people from going on the court because you can't go on the court during the game. But And I know the game wasn't technically over because the refs put a second back on the clock, which could become problematic for everybody. But in those players' minds at that time, the game is over. And so that's when they start going out on the court. So because it happened in the final second, you've got – and and right next to the Kansas State bench, while DeSosa's standing over Gordon, you've got a collection of people that just start to to create a crowd as if it were a street fight instead of a basketball basketball situation. And then, of course, uh, Antonio Gordon, a different Gordon, number 11 in this case if you're watching the video – he flies in there pretty, pretty quickly and pretty strongly. And his actions lead to DeSosa falling down because yeah. there's a whole bunch of angles to this. I mean, I learned more this morning watching different angles than I knew about last night. So that's right. the other thing about people who had initial reactions. The different angles you know, tell a different story. And I'm, I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong or absolving anybody, but – uh, the initial stuff looks like DeSosa just came out wailing. Mm-hmm. And what the additional angles show is that he got knocked down aggressively and then he got up and started swinging. So Antonio Gordon is the person that was responsible for DeSosa going down. And then he comes up and starts swinging. And I can't um, 
you know, I, I can't excuse that. It is why he will be suspended, I would assume, for a significant amount of time. As we're talking right now, it's 12, 11 p.m. Eastern on January 22nd. The suspensions, whatever they will be, and whoever they will involve have not been announced yet. I would imagine DeSosa gets the worst of it because I don't care what happens to you. You cannot come up throwing punches the way he was throwing punches. You can't pick up that stool the way he picked it up. Even if he didn't use it, he picked it up like he was about to use it. And you, there are pictures of fans terrified of what they're suddenly in the middle of. I will say this. Talking to Jameer and Wally last night, they said if you get into a basketball confrontation, like with rare exception, you know that nobody's throwing punches. Like it just doesn't happen that often. I know it has happened, but it doesn't happen that often. So like as Wally was explaining, it, if a basketball player gets in your face, no matter what he's saying, no matter how close he is, you can reasonably assume he's not going to throw a punch. So you're not prepared to throw a punch. And then no punches get thrown because nobody's trying to get suspended for 50 games. So that those that's why those never lead to where this led to. What Wally and Jameer both said is that because this happened at the baseline close to fans and then people not in uniform joined the fray, like James Love, the Kansas State red shirt who was in the black shirt street clothes, Jameer and Wally both said, your mind goes to a different place when you don't see basketball players in your face anymore. Because then it just feels like you're really in a fight with you don't know who these people are. And they both believe that James Love, who was in street clothes for Kansas State, running out and starting to throw punches like he did made this thing even worse because they both thought it was reasonable to assume the Kansas players, DeSosa included, don't know who that is. They just see a person in street clothes throwing wild punches, and then it just escalated to where it went. Either way, the whole thing is just really, really ugly. That's a really good point about love and uh, and being in street clothes. And, yeah, cert- certainly on a GP on a visceral level, if you're DeSosa, um, not just that, but then the videos you mentioned, I, I, I that was actually the last one, or one of them. There are a couple of them that have surfaced of uh, the – the the vantage point uh, from the Kansas student section, a little bit elevated off the floor, but right, you know, all the 25, 30 feet away from where this stuff originated. Um, you really do see a, a picture of DeSouza, uh, you know, back on his heels a little bit, and you got a lot of guys coming at him, and then he takes a stumble, and they take swings, and then, you know... It, it, you know, proverbially backed into a corner, um, he chooses to to fight instead of flight. Uh, in the moment, I understand that I will not absolve DeSosa. I mean, picking up the stool is terrible. Um, thankfully, it didn't get worse than that. Um, and for those that are listening to this podcast, we don't know when the the suspensions and punishments are going to come down. We're recording this obviously Wednesday, just during the lunch hour here. We could have something by end of day. We might not have something until uh, Thursday. But I do want to at least uh, provide listeners with um, with updates that Bruce Weber and Bill Self both spoke on the conference call for the Big Twelve. You know, coincidentally, the Big Twelve had its conference call scheduled for today. Uh, Bruce Weber said he quotes hope it's hope resolution happens sooner rather than later. He said, "I'm very very sad." of the event that happened last night. It's not good for K-State, not good for Kansas, not good for college basketball. Obviously, it's disappointing. There's many people to blame. I'm the head of our program. It falls back on me. Bill Self also um, largely echoed that, uh, but said, you know, listen, I'm, I can speak for Kansas. We were in the wrong. I'm not saying Kansas State was innocent or it was guilty, but the reviewing of this is ongoing. I would think that Kansas, Kansas State will work with the Big 12. Um, and who knows, maybe we have a joint release from 
both those institutions and the Big 12 saying, here are the disciplines that we are handing out that have been agreed upon uh, by both Kansas and Kansas State. I don't know how many games are going to get. I don't know if DeSouza is going to get three or six or nine or the rest of the season. I don't know. But Antonio Gordon certainly exacerbated the issue. Um, you know, there are varying levels here. And then you've got the fact that, you know, players are coming off the bench, uh, immediate ejections. The big picture stuff I've thought about, GP, is, you know, in the offseason, will the Big 12 and potentially other leagues look to enforce even stricter rules when it comes to this kind of stuff? Because if you're, if you're a conference commissioner, if you're an athletic director, if you're a college coach, what you don't want, you want to avoid at all means possible, even though this stuff is rare, any sort of duplication of this or, you know, you, you know next year, two years, five years, down the road, you want to have some protocols in place where um, coaches know and their players know that you know, if you do this, like it is serious to this level, you know, this level of suspension, this, this, and this. So, you know, I think that might be something we see implemented long after the season's over. Um, we could have some harsher stuff there, but um, you know, obviously a, a bad look for for the sport. Um, I said on the podcast on the emergency pod. It's not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, and I'm surprised that fights don't happen more frequently, to be honest, given the heat of competition. But uh, but to just shrug this off is just like, okay, some guys got into a scuffle near the end of the game. No, this was actually really, really close to being really, really bad. You know, as far as we know, no one was significantly injured, but that could have easily been the case. And I'm not even just talking about DeSouza holding the stool. The images that have emanated from Getty and uh, other photographers on site show Frankly, some pretty scary stuff. Like a woman on, knocked to the floor right under DeSouza as he's wielding the chair. You've got uh, disabled people right there. You've got older people clearly like, screaming as all this is unfolding. So they were lucky that um, the tempers were you know, able to be quelled relatively quickly, but it, it could have been much uglier. And I promise you, if someone had been seriously hurt or if the chair str- would have you know, struck someone, we're having a much different conversation. And the story would frankly be two, three, four times as big as it is here today on Wednesday. If DeSosa swings that stool, which he appeared very close to doing, that's game, set, match for him. Uh, he, he would have never played for Kansas again. Um, that he didn't do it, he will still be significantly suspended. And, and by the way, I won't protest if, if they just dismiss him from the program. Um, I'm not going to uh, ride for Silvio DeSosa. But I also won't um, lose my mind if it's only – you know, six games, nine games, 10 games, 12 games, whatever. Like if he plays again this season, um, I, I, you know, in, in, in most other sports, there are people who swing fist. Um, we see it in baseball all the time. We see it in hockey every night. Um, you know, I, I know this is different because it's spilled into um, a, a section that included fans and fans were at risk, even if no fans were seriously hurt. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is he, he has to be disciplined significantly, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the end of everything. Um, if it is, you know, I, I'll understand it, but if it isn't, I'll also, I'll also, uh, understand that. The only thing I would say, uh, about all of this, um, and, and, and perhaps this is just a small point that only matters to me a little bit like, a my pet peeve of defending national champ against reigning national champ. I see a lot of people while discussing this or tweeting about this talking about, well, you have to understand they're just kids, the kids, 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 and they're not kids. I, I, I can't like they're, they're, they're too much. I believe is 21 years old. He's an adult. If you want to call the people who were involved in this immature adults, I'll accept that young adults. I'll accept that. But to label them as kids is to try to discount what actually happened here. They're not kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old 
They're kids. Silvio DeSosa is not a kid. Uh, Marcus Garrett is not a kid. David McCormick is not a kid. Antonio Gordon is not a kid. James Love is not a kid. These are young adults who got involved in a in really ugly and potentially dangerous situation. And so if we are going to label it, let's at least label it accurately. Uh, I agree 1,000% with that, Parrish. Um, the, you know, it doesn't mean that they're capable of, uh, you know, making a sound decision, <laughs> buying their own home, or for sure making the right career choice that they know they want to make at 21 years old. But you know right from wrong when it comes to having a heated moment like that and, uh, and getting involved in physical altercations. Um, I guess one last point I would okay. make is this, because you mentioned, like, is there a rule, you know, will they enhance rules to try to prevent similar situations? And my, my, instinct, my, my initial thought to that was, I don't know what rule could have prevented this. I mean, there are rules against throwing punches and, 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 and leaving benches, and they didn't stop any of it. So um, what rule does this? Although I will say, Major League Baseball just sent a pretty serious message about sign stealing. Like, we learned in the past couple of weeks, if you do this thing, and we catch you doing this thing, it will cost you your job. Like, th- 10% of Major League Baseball managers got fired. Um, for a sign-stealing scandal, and, whereas the FBI investigated college basketball and only one head coach lost his job. Like, Major League Baseball sent a real message to everybody. Hey, you could keep doing this if you want to, but if you do it and we catch you, you will lose your job. And I, I would assume that that's going to change behavior in Major League Baseball. I just know this. If I were a manager and we had a sign-stealing scheme in place, uh, we would eliminate it because I ain't losing my job over this. It ain't worth it. And I wonder if, the Big 12 right here. Like, let's say they do come down hard on DeSosa and they say, you know what? He's dismissed from the team. He's not allowed to play ever again. Then that scene uh, sends a clear message. We don't care why you throw a punch. Mm-hmm. We don't care if you're defending yourself. If, if somebody throws a punch at you, your proper action at that point is not to throw a punch. We'll take care of that guy. He'll be gone forever. If you retaliate with a punch, you'll be gone forever. Punch throwing is not allowed in this sport. If you throw one for regardless of the reason, you are done being a college basketball player. I'm not insisting they should go that far, but I think if you're trying to eliminate this from as, as a realistic possibility, go that far, send that message, and then everybody knows I can stand over somebody, somebody can stand over me, we can get in each other's face, but if we throw a punch, it's over with, and then probably nobody throws punches. All right, you want to get some uh, some real hoop hoop stuff? Yeah, I guess we'll talk basketball for a minute. The reigning national champions might really miss the NCAA tournament. We're going to get into that next. But first, check this out. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads, 
Make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. So Virginia lost earlier in the week, 53-51 at home to NC State. Now the Cavaliers are 12-6 and overall, 4-4 four and four in the ACC. They've lost four of their past five games. They're averaging just 54.4 points in their past five games. Norlander, easy question. Is Virginia going to miss the 2020 NCAA tournament? Uh, is that easy? Um, I'll still say no. Now, I put out a poll uh, about three results ago. I actually, because at that point, Virginia was obviously in better standing then than it is now at 12 and 6. It's, it's an issue. But after Virginia took the loss at home in overtime to uh, Syracuse, I polled, and I don't know how many people responded, more than 1,000, is, is, is Virginia going to make the tournament? And it was about a, two-thirds, 66 or 67% said yes, 33% said no. I think if you did that again, we'd be more general public. It'd probably be 50-50 right around there. I'll still say UVA is going to make it. Somehow, some way, still has the number one rated defensive efficiency in college basketball this season. Um, the offense, we've already talked about it. It's horrendous. It's the second biggest gap between defensive rating and offensive rating in all of college hoops. But you lose at home to NC State and, you know, you know, pray for me. I actually watched most of that UVA-NC State game. Uh, didn't look good. Um, and now, you know, they got a road test against Wake this Sunday. Who knows? A loss there, then, then I think I would change my answer, Parrish. But I'm going to say, yes, they're still going to make it. And I'm going to say that because I think that they're going to win uh, two of their next three at least. At Wake, home to Florida State, home to Clemson. I think they'd still be uh, trending right there. But if they don't do it, they will join 2012-2013 uh, Kentucky, 14-15 uh, UConn as recent national champions who did not make the NCAA tournament the following year. It's not it's not common. It's not rare. It just happens every so often. Um but this is, a, this is a result here, despite all the talent they lost. I don't think anyone was expecting Virginia, 18 games into its season, to be dancing right on the edge of the bubble. In the past 30 years, four teams have won a national title and then missed the tournament the next season. It's Florida, wins 2007 title, misses 2008 tournament. North Carolina wins 2009 title, misses 2010 tournament. Kentucky wins 2012 title. Misses 2013 tournament. UConn wins 2014 title. Misses 2015 tournament. My answer to my own question, by the way, is um, yes. Okay. I think Virginia is going to miss the NCAA tournament. And I'll tell you why. Um, first off, the numbers just aren't good. 50th at Kempom, 66 in the net, 3-3 three and three in Quadrant 1 slash Quadrant 2 opportunities with two Quadrant 3 losses, 1-4 and four in the past five games. 243rd in offensive efficiency. 243. Now, we both know, and honestly, anybody knows, that that is a horrendous number. Here's what I realized last night. Tell me if this surprises you. I went back through the entire Ken Palm database, dates back to 2002, and you cannot find another power conference team with an offensive efficiency rating that low that made the NCAA tournament. Is there even Ever. one? Did you look at, like, is there even one that's below 200? I didn't go to 200 because okay. I was doing quick research. But okay. I, I start, last night they were at 239. Now they're at 243. So I started at 239 and I went every year. And you will find like 
you know, a MEAC school that got an auto bid right. that was that bad in offensive efficiency. But there is not a single power conference team that has ever made the NCAA tournament, at least in the Ken Palm era, which dates back to 2001-2002 season, with an offensive efficiency rating that ranks this low. So if you're if you still are holding on to the idea that Virginia is going to do this, you are you're asking them to do something that's never been done at their level. You know what'll what'll be interesting if that does happen. You know, I, you know, they lose to UMBC, they come back, they win the national championship, just in all time, year over year, a success story that's unparalleled in the history of sports, really. But whereas most thought they just kind of would ride in that wake, and you know, okay, maybe they're a three seed, maybe they're a five, maybe they're an eight, but they're going to get in. You know, top four, top five team in the ACC. It's Tony Bennett; they'll still be good, and it's just kind of, you know, you kind of just uh, peter out, if you will, off the uh, the fumes of that championship season. Instead, this could actually extend into um, a bizarre uh, third act, if you will, if they don't make if they don't make the tournament. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it would be you know, the worst thing, or you know, uh, you know, we should totally criticize and tear down what Tony Bennett does. That would just be idiotic. But um, it would be intriguing to see one seed, 16 down, one seed win it all. Don't even make the tournament, period. Become just the fifth team in, in three decades to, uh, to fail to do so. But we disagree. As of right now, I'll say they're going to squeak in because of that defense. Reserve the right to change my mind with a little more data, a little bit larger sample size within uh, the next four or five games. But certainly, I you know, that would qualify to me as one of the 10 or 15 more intriguing storylines to track as we drift into the, uh, the start of February. And we know that Virginia lost a lot. They lost three NBA players off, of, you know, three early entries to the NBA draft. Um, you know, it, it, top three scores. So they lost a ton, but they were still 11th in the preseason AP poll that mostly, and I wrote about this in the offseason, um, just giving the benefit of the doubt to Tony Bennett, but they have been one of the a bigger disappointments in the country. You can sort of understand North Carolina to some degree because they lost Cole Anthony. Virginia lost Braxton Key for a bit, but like, you know, that this is basically their team and it's not a good team and a horrendous team on the offensive end of the court. I know you led your court report with Illinois. You talked to Brad Underwood about his red hot Illini team. What'd you learn? All right. So yeah, um, it's up uh, on your phone at the site, cbsports.com. It's the lead item in the court report, which is actually, it's got a lot of good stuff. There are a lot of good goodies on Marcus Howard, Rutgers, the unlikelihood of Vanderbilt um, going over 25. But Illinois is the lead item here. Illinois wins at Purdue on Tuesday night. I talked with Underwood um, you know, late Tuesday morning in advance of that. He even said, I don't know what we're going to expect tonight. You know, Purdue is awesome at home, a little bit different on the road. <laughs> well... Here we have it. Illinois has swept Purdue and is 14-5, 6-2 in the league. It's the best Big Ten start for Illinois in 14 seasons. The 14-5 record is their best record through 19 games um, in, in nearly a decade here. So what's happened, and I did find this fascinating, you know, Brad Underwood's 56. He's been around college basketball and basketball, obviously, for decades here. But he got a relatively late head start in terms of getting his first head coaching job. It didn't happen until his late 40s. And then he was immediately incredible at Stephen F. Austin, as you well know, GP. He won 89 games in his first three seasons, made the NCAA tournament all those seasons, and even won NCAA tournament games. His 89 wins matched Brad Stevens for the most wins in the first three seasons to a start of a head coaching career in men's Division One history. So then he goes to Oklahoma State. Um, they were bad. They were sputtering over Travis Ford immediately. Boom. Best offense in America gets the NCAA tournament, plays the best game of that year's tournament, in my opinion, against Michigan in the first round. And then he's courted by Illinois, pays him a lot more money. He goes there, and that's the spot where he thinks he's going to be able to thrive for 10 to 15 years and kind of finish out his career there. But Illinois was uh, bumpy at best the past two seasons. And so 
what 56-year-old Brad Underwood did was decided to say, okay, I've had this style and it's been successful for me, but it's clearly not working with the personnel that I have here. Why is that? So um, he brings in a couple of, of people. Uh, one was an advanced guy with the Lakers. Another had done work with the Celtics. Uh, brings them in to say, hey, can you help me analyze my team? What are we doing wrong? And can we look at the teams that made the Sweet 16? If there are common trend lines with those teams, let's look at the, some of the better, you know, the top three or four Big Ten teams last season, the season before. How are we missing out? What am I doing wrong? And to Underwood's credit, uh, he he just decided that my coaching philosophy, the way that I am prepping, the way that I'm telling my assistants to scout, the way that we are doing film, it's probably not going to work in the Big Ten and with the players that I want to recruit here. So he blew it all up. He noticed that the team's offensive rebounding was terrible. It was terrible getting to the foul line, and it was terrible at actually committing fouls. He said those were some of the biggest factors there. And he tore it all down. He didn't know for sure if it was going to work. And in fact, GP, you know, to start the season um, – Illinois was 5-3 and three against Division One competition. It got blown out against Arizona. It lost some tough games against Miami and Maryland. And he even told me, you know, I did have doubt. I had frustration. I knew I'd have patience. But, you know, we were losing to Miami and Maryland. And if I, he believes if we had played the style that I wanted to play, we would have won both those games. So instead of being 6-3, and three, we would have been 8-1 and one and had a better record. But I think for the long-term benefit of our program and for this team, I had to really put trust in the process. And the big unknown for him was, you're in a critical year three. Was this going to work not just in the Big Ten, but on the road in the Big Ten? And now look at him. One at Wisconsin for the first time uh, in a decade. One at Purdue for the first time in a decade. There's, they're, you know, they're second in, in the Big Ten right now. Um, so just credit to Illinois. I, I find it fascinating. You will not find a lot of coaches, GP, in their 50s that are willing. All these coaches are trying to learn and evolve. I get that. There's a difference between that and saying, my methods, I'm going to chuck into the trash bin. I'm going to trust uh, you know, a bunch of younger people to help me understand how we need to be more efficient. And now for Illinois, it's working. They're going to make the tournament. Told you that in the preseason. They're clearly headed that way. The Illini fans have been dying for this. And I think Tuesday night's win was so huge. They got a Michigan game on the road coming up. Um, two of the next three are still on the road. So it was just good for the resume overall. Credit to them. Clearly have talent. There's other stuff you can read in the piece as well, but um, I found it fascinating what he revealed to me and how Illinois you know, changed the direction of its program. I'm always impressed by super successful people who are willing to adapt, who can recognize, okay, what I've done, because I think it's very easy to just uh, sort of rely on, hey, I've always done it this way and it's always worked, so why wouldn't it work anymore? Um, you, you, when people can quickly diagnose an issue and then are willing to change it, particularly at an advanced age, is, is pretty impressive stuff. You know, Bob Huggins has done this multiple times. Um, I think Mike Krzyzewski has, has done it, um, you know, over and over again. And so I, I think that's among the smartest things, uh, you know, it, 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 people in general can do. But, yeah, college basketball coaches in, included. Like, uh, don't just assume that the way you've always done something is the way – to still do it or will be effective for you because the game is constantly changing. The players are constantly changing. And, um, you know, it seems to that approach, that willingness to adapt, it seems to be working uh, for Brad uh, quite clearly. There's another, a couple of things that didn't make the story that I did want to include in the podcast here. And I bet you that we'll circle around to this later in the season. Um, 
one thing in particular was Underwood said something we've always put an emphasis on is trying to score, if we can, in the first seven seconds of the shot clock. Now, that was born out of the fact that he loved to pressure and get those turnovers, uh, but he's backed off the pressure. If you watch Illinois this season versus last season or Stephen F. Austin teams, if you just watch, all right, watch this game, then watch this game, it's, it's, it's glaringly obvious. But the other thing was, Illinois is a terrible three-point shooting team. It's, it's 30.2% on the year, 293 in the country, and he said... Uh, we'd be even better, obviously, if we were able to, to make more of our three-pointers. He said, I don't quite get it. I do feel, and coaches will say this often, he's like, listen, I feel that we're a better three-point shooting team than we've shown. We were better last season. Maybe that will come around. But Underwood actually had a, an interesting little theory on the side. He said, the three-point line, um, his exact quote was, has jacked up the offenses in college basketball. He thinks it's a player and a half different, um, whereas you might have a pick. He said, even that little, bit of, that little bit of distance here is affecting if you have a pick-and-pop five. Maybe he's only making one or two a game versus three or four, and that has an impact, and coaches are more willing. If you're shooting, if you're a, if you're a stretch four, and with the old line, you're hitting 33%, and with the new line, you're hitting 27%, coaches will say, no, we'll take it. Go ahead. You can shoot it. We'll, we'll absolutely ex- uh Accept that. And he also said the floor is becoming a quagmire, his term, inside the three-point line of bodies, just trying to figure out how to move them, how to run offense there. So, And he had more, and I'm, we might save that for a, a piece down the road, but I just thought it was interesting in him talking about his team and how, how it's been able to change. The one thing was he thought they would be better from three, and it's not so far this season. And he is right across the board. The numbers are down. I mean, there are fewer three-point attempts. Teams aren't shooting as well. But um, if you wanted a big-picture examination, um, the fact that I think coaches and offenses and players are just a little bit askew with this new line um, I thought was an interesting insight from Underwood. All right. You can read that over at CBSSports.com, Norlander's Court Report. It's on his Twitter feed as well. Let's get to the midweek mailbag. What we do is take three questions that people leave um, over at Apple Podcasts. You go over there, leave a five-star review. You can say whatever you want to say. We hope it's kind. And then if you want to ask a question, ask a question. I can't get to every one of them, but I will read all of them, and then I'll pull three out, and uh, we'll knock them out one, two, three. So the first question comes from Tom. Tom says um, his oldest son is a Duke fan. And his oldest son seems to be bad luck for Duke because he was at the NCAA tournament loss a few years ago to South Carolina. He was at the Stephen F. Austin loss earlier this season, and he was at the Clemson loss last week. So Tom's question is this. Is it time for his son to stay away from Duke games because he appears to be bad luck for the Blue Devils? <laughs> don't put this on a don't this I don't know how old the son is here but uh, don't put it on put it on the on a boy or a young man now if you want to stick with that listen the history says that if you're going to root for Duke you're going to wind up way happier uh, than not in fact it's essentially uh, Duke and Kansas you know historically over the past 25 30 years are the biggest locks Kansas has the longest consecutive streak inside the AP top 25 by a mile and then Duke obviously with making the NCAA tournament being a one-two seed almost every single season so yeah that uh, if he wants to be a Duke fan don't don't persuade don't have him switching off to you know NC State no offense NC State fans you get what I'm saying uh, stay the course young man this is basically a question about superstitions, right? Sure. Do you, you, you like? And I understand people have these. Like, I can't go to this game because um, every time I do, they lose. Or I, I can't watch my team because uh, when they do, uh, or or it works the other way. Like every time I watch, they win, so I gotta watch this time. I just don't believe in superstitions at all. Like I think the fact that Tom's oldest son. Um, was at the loss to South Carolina and the Stephen F. Austin loss and last week's loss to Clemson is a coincidence. I don't think it has anything to do with Tom's son. I, I think it's kind of, you know, from a, a logical perspective, kind of uh, foolish to think that you or anybody else could have an impact 
on the result of a game simply by being in attendance or watching or wearing a shirt or your lucky socks. So I just fundamentally don't believe in superstitions at all. I have zero. And so I would encourage Tom and his son, both of whom listen to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, to just do away with superstitions and get to as many Duke games as you could possibly get to. Enjoy your first class program. All right. What's next? Second question comes from Dana. Dana asked the following. Is there any school with a bigger discrepancy in its basketball and football program than Kansas? I would say the Kansas football program, basketball program, both look like big, strong fighters. So uh, maybe not. But in terms of results of games, and I think that's what Dana was referencing, uh, I think it's probably Kansas, sure, and has been consistently. Uh, Arizona is another candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really good in basketball, not so good right now in football. Arkansas, you know, nah. it, it, I mean, I guess maybe, I, but Arkansas in, is in, in the good, moment. In the moment, good at basketball, terrible at football. But they're not that good. I mean, they're uh, this right now, the season, sure, but um, yeah. yeah, just in in the moment. Historically, the moment. it's Kansas. In the moment, Arizona fits. Arkansas fits. Rutgers, good Rutgers, at basketball. Yes. Yes, and uh, and and I just I really I just went through like Sagarin football ratings and tried to find uh, good football teams with bad basketball programs and vice versa. Navy, pretty good football program, not so great basketball Navy, program. Okay, uh, and and then the inverse of this, um, I think uh, two programs that have you know, the tightest blend where, you know, the basketball program, the football program, they can't really get ahead of each other. They're pretty much equal, I think, are Colorado and Minnesota. You know, Minnesota's a hockey school. Uh, Colorado, I, I don't even know. Um, so, yeah, I've, I'm always more intrigued by the schools that are almost, like, kind of split evenly. Maybe Iowa is in that discussion as well, uh, the ones who, you know, you don't really have a leg up on either one. A third question comes from Sam. Sam asks, GP, when you're in New York for CBS Sports Network, what's the studio like TV-wise for games? Are you in another room or are there just a bunch of TVs right in front of the set? All right. The way it works is uh, we sit in a place called the bullpen, not actually on the set. It's, uh, you know, 20 steps from the set that you see on television. But it's like a row of, of tables with computers and um, there, there's the, the on-air people are sitting there. Producers are there. Um, research, um, uh, 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 the research department is, is right there with us. We're all in the same room and there's 12 TVs in that room. And so we've got everything on in front of us and, you know, we, we eat dinner in there. We watch games in there. Um, you know, we hang out in there. We just, we have meetings in there. We discuss, we, you know, they're different at different places, but that's the way it is at, at, at CBS. And then when we're out on set, we also have something they call the tree, and it's like, it looks like a tree. Uh, and the branches would be, I believe, nine different televisions. And they can sort of wheel that around. So they can put it right in front of our set. And then when it's time for us to go on television, they can remove it from the set, get it out of camera's view. But there's never a moment, whether we're on set, off set, where we don't have access to basically every game that is on television that we care about keeping our, our, our eyes on. Like down at Turner, because I've been in those studios before too, they have a, a, a room where it's a bunch of TVs, same setup, but like they have big recliners. Like there's a Shaq recliner and a Charles recliner, and they really do just like lay back um, and, and watch games and have a good time. And then when it's time to go on set, your uh, stage director will come out and say, hey, we're at the under four timeout. Guys, I need you out on set. And we walk out on set. But we don't sit on the set the entire night. That would uh, – I guess we could do it, but, but we, we don't do it to answer your question. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool little setup there, and uh, 
si- kind of similar to uh, the Stanford studio and uh, CBS Sports HQ, where they got like a, a bullpen, a green room, if you will, with uh, with five TVs in there. I'll be in there Saturday again for some uh, for some more analysis. But yeah, GP's got more work on uh, on Wednesday night. By the way, just some transparency for the listeners. Doing the final segment of this podcast with my little guy here. He's actually being quiet, little Alex. Oh, not anymore. Okay, so yeah, this is uh, podcasting from home. You want to be let down, buddy? You want to say hi to all the thousands of people? You want to say hi? No. Okay, good times. Good times. I mean, that, uh, yeah, uh, our options are, like I get back to my hotel last night at 2 a.m. And so our options are record at 2 a.m., which is just unfair to Norlander, even though I'm wide awake. He's got to get up with his children the following morning, so that I, I can't reasonably ask him that. But then it's like, we then if we don't record at 2 a.m., we have to record it when, uh, on Wednesday and hope that Norlander's children <laughs> act act okay. And I'll give him credit; he was good today. He's, he's been he's been okay, but I did have it on mute a couple times as he was uh, making noise on, on the other side of the house. But no uh, scratches or bumps, so we're good. I will be back in studio tonight, Wednesday night, CBS Sports Network. We've got uh, St. Bonaventure at Dayton. So that's Obi Toppin and a Dayton team that I think is a real Final Four candidate. That's 7 o'clock Eastern. It'll be followed by Creighton at DePaul. And then, of course, we'll have a 30-minute Inside College Basketball show at the end of the night to wrap everything up. Hopefully there will be no more fights. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry. MF and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. Please. Go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments, and we will talk to you again on Friday morning. Till then, take care.